Oh, wonderful. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 7. If you're making notes, you want a title, I've called this one Cleansed by Grace Alone. Last time out, we spent time in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. The story then continues in verses 14 through 23, which is where we're going to spend time today. But to understand the context, we will go ahead and read from verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But You say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me. All of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around this lesson today, 
Lord, we do ask that you would speak to us. Lord, would you arrest our souls afresh today? Would we hear your voice over mine as we sit under your word? Would we hear your still voice speaking to our souls? And would that moment, 2,000 years on from when this was written, that moment be today afresh, life-changing to everyone present. Lord, speak to us by your grace. Amen. You know, there are certain moments, as I said a few weeks ago, certain moments in our lives that change everything. Sometimes for us, sometimes for others, sometimes both, and yet certain moments without any doubt that change our lives and change everything. And for Jesus, this was without doubt one of those moments. On the 18th of April, 1521, Martin Luther had his moment. He'd already posted his 95-part thesis on the Wittenberg church doors. He had posted a 95-part thesis actually on the doors of his church so that everybody could read it And it spoke against the Pope. It spoke against the traditions of the Catholic Church. It spoke against the realities and to the realities that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they were the very doctrines that he had previously began to preach in his church. And yet in April of 1521, he finds himself hauled before the Diet of Worms to be tried for heresy by Eck and the Council of the Holy Roman Empire. And in 1521, if you were tried by this council, and if you were found to be a heretic, you would undoubtedly face the death penalty. And so they begin to press in on Martin Luther. How dare you say these things? How dare you stand for these things? How dare you preach these things in our churches? We want you to recount them now in the name of Jesus. And they begin to harry him and hurry him and pressure him into what this will mean if he doesn't recount this heresy that he is preaching. And he, in a loud voice, declares, Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So may God help me. Amen. It was a moment that changed everything for Martin Luther. and It was a moment that impacted the world as the Reformation then began to pick up pace at greater speed all over the world. And yet here in Mark chapter 7, we see an even greater world-defining moment. A moment that changed everything for Jesus and in turn then us. A conflict and a confrontation between him and the Pharisees and the scribes that is sharp, that is direct, that is intense. We have Jesus on the one side and the scribes and the Pharisees on the other side going toe to toe. And Jesus, looking at the Pharisees and the scribes in their eyes, declares to them, I'll tell you who you are. You are hypocrites. I mean, these would be the guys in the white gowns. You know what I'm saying? They are the religious elite of the day. They would walk into a synagogue. Everybody would be like, oh, look who it is. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. They would be hailed because of their understanding, because of their wisdom, because of their perceived moral purity. And yet Jesus totally squares on with these guys and says, I'll tell you who you are. You're hypocrites. Because you worship God with your lips and yet your hearts are far from the Lord. 
Your teachings aren't the teachings of God. My Father, your teachings are the traditions of men and they're screwing up people's lives all over the place. So you're hypocrites. And that would be a moment that would change everything for Jesus because in effect, in that moment, he signed his own death warrant. Humanly speaking, it would be these people, the scribes and the Pharisees, that would ensure that Jesus gets killed on a bloody cross. And yet Jesus does it anyway, knowing that's what's going to happen. As the sovereign king of all, he divinely sets it up to happen that way. Even knowing that this would be a moment in his life that would change everything. And yet as this narrative continues, what you realize is that this moment hasn't finished yet. Because as Jesus, having gone toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and the scribes, looks on now at the crowd and perceives that they're backing away from him all this time, and the disciples, who are also given the intensity of the confrontation, beginning to back away. Jesus, full of compassion, wants to take a moment to teach them something. He wants to give them a lesson on what really defiles them. And that then is what we have here. A lesson on what really defiles us. What is it that absolutely cuts us off from God? What is it in our lives that takes place that causes there to be such a chasm between us and God? What is it that makes us unclean? What is it that defiles us, which means a holy God cannot spend time with us? That's what he wants to communicate to the crowds and the disciples in this moment. And I'm so grateful he did. Because it's a lesson that really is life-changing. A lesson that still speaks today for every one of us in the room. So I have two points today. Number one, the lesson itself. And number two, the lesson applied. I want us to see the lesson itself. And then I want us to see how does this apply to us today? What difference does this make for us today? In particular, how should this lesson affect us today? Because as Martin Luther said, the Bible, the Word, really does have feet. It pursues us. It has harms. It goes around us. It has a voice. It speaks to us. God wants this lesson to speak to us today. So number one then, the lesson itself. And let's look then at verse 14 once again. It says, And he, Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Now what should be immediately obvious to all of us is that while this confrontation has been taking place, because it is taking place between the two heavyweights of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus, the crowd have been doing this. It's a little bit awkward over there. So they've been backing away the whole time. They just feel awkward. I mean, have you ever experienced that when two people are conflicting? You think, "Ah, I'll just be in the room next door. That's what's going on here. The crowd are literally backing away from what's going on. This is an awkward moment from them. And so he calls to the people and says, hey, hey, whoa, come back. I want to talk to you. Getting close where you can hear my voice again. And he calls them in close. And what should be immediately obvious to us is the lesson he is about to give them to Jesus 
There is an unmistakable urgency and priority in his tone. Unmistakable. Hear me, all of you, and understand. He doesn't just say, hey, let me tell you something. Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is an urgency in the Savior's tone. As he calls them in, what he's effectively saying is, listen, come here, I want you to get this. I'm going to tell you something that I really want you to understand. Now, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, my historical hero, once said, Life, death, hell, and worlds unknown may hang on the preaching and hearing of a sermon. I think he's right. There are moments in our lives when as we gather under the preached word, the word of God, that heaven and hell and life and death are at stake. Moments in our lives that we can look back on and remember the actual message that happened to change our lives as we heard the gospel proclaimed. And as that preacher proclaimed it, he proclaimed it knowing that heaven or hell or life and death are at stake. And Jesus in this moment understands that for these crowds and for these disciples, heaven and hell and life and death are at stake. So hear me and understand He wants to ensure that they get everything he is about to say. And then he says it. Verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. You know, what Jesus says here is a direct response to the Pharisees and scribes' accusation in verse 5. So verse 5, they accuse Jesus, in effect. They say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus knew that was an accusation against him. There was the tradition of the elders to have to wash our hands ceremonially before we eat food. Otherwise, it was the common belief under the tradition of the elders that you'd be eating with defiled hands. How dare you do that? So they're basically accusing Jesus. How dare you not follow the tradition of the elders? Things that we've held on to for hundreds of years. They're trying to discredit him as a rabbi and a teacher. And it can appear on face value that this matter of accusation is just of secondary importance. Because he ignores it to start off with. He goes toe-to-toe with him and completely ignores the question and goes after who they are as hypocrites. Doesn't even answer their question. But to think that this matter of what we perceive as secondary importance is of secondary importance would be a big mistake. Because Jesus did understand what they were saying as of critical importance. Because he understood and realizes that the underlying issue that the Pharisees and the scribes are bringing up here is the question of what makes us acceptable before God. To the Pharisees and the scribes, if we just wash our hands in a certain way at a certain time and eat the right foods, we'll be acceptable to God. He'll be able to spend time with us. We'll be declared holy because of the washing of our hands and because of what we eat. Jesus understands what they're saying. But he also understands that life and death and heaven and hell are at stake 
depending on how the crowds react to this. He understands this is false teaching. And so he wants to address the crowds. Because he wants to help them see what is it that makes us acceptable before God. And so he tells them, what defiles us is not what goes in. It's not what goes in our mouths as food. It's what comes out. What comes out of our hearts. You know, that concise comment would have rocked the world of every Jew there, which was indeed all of them. This is a Jewish crowd. What do you mean? What we eat then doesn't matter? This would have been an astounding shock to them. Because in Jewish tradition and culture and law, there had always been a link between what one eats and their acceptability before God. This would be like going into a Muslim on Ramadan and saying, hey, listen, I I understand what you're doing, but don't worry about it. It really doesn't matter what you eat. They would all turn around and look at you and go, what? This is nonsense. That's what Jesus is doing here to the Jews. In effect, it doesn't matter what you eat because what defiles you is not what goes in, it's what comes out of your heart. Now you will notice in your Bibles, those more observant, is that there's no verse 16. You ever notice that? I certainly did when I started studying it and I started writing it out and realizing 15, 17, where there is a number missing from my Bible. Well, The reason for that is because our verse numbers in our Bibles are not in the original Hebrew and the Greek. They're not divine, okay? They're not divinely despised. God didn't say, okay, well, now verse 16 and verse 17. God didn't do that. God just spoke. They wrote it down. And then when we translated it into the English in the early years, we put numbers to it to help us find the different things in our text. And yet most scholars today understand and believe that because verse 16 isn't actually in the original text. And many of the common manuscripts that we use today, they took it out. And so if you've got an ESV study Bible, you will see a little note at the bottom that explains to us a bit more about that and explains what some manuscripts thought it to say. Namely, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And yet they've taken it out of the ESV, believing that actually that's not in the original text. And if you've got questions about that, Brendan Willis is available at the end of the service. And you can go to SG College. It's exactly what he's talking about at the moment, and he'll be able to help you. And yet in verse 17 through 23, Jesus nonetheless gives gives us a complete treatment on this subject of what defiles us. Verse 14 and 15, we've had a concise treatment on this subject, but now he gives us a complete treatment on the subject. And he gives us a complete treatment because the disciples, as we've got used to by now, Don't get it. Verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? I mean, we've had this for the last seven and a half chapters, have we not? We're getting kind of used by now to the disciples just going, Uh... Question. You know, they just don't get it. They can't understand it. Jesus is plain English to them. They kind of do get the drift of what he's saying. They just can't believe it. And so Jesus then from verse 18b through to verse 23 explains to them in detail. Okay, let me slow the question down. 
Help you see what defiles you. Help you see what makes you acceptable before God. So he says this in verse 18b about what doesn't defile us. He says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And so the reason that food can't defile us, anybody, anywhere in the world at any time, is because food goes in your mouth, goes into your stomach, not your heart. It's absorbed through the digestive system. What's not absorbed is removed through the body. It doesn't affect your heart in any way, and so it can't defile us. That's why verse 19b, in parenthesis, Mark says, thus his stomach, sorry, thus he declared all foods clean. That's a massive statement. In Jewish culture, that is huge. So we can eat anything? Yeah. Yeah, you can. That would have been an astonishing statement to these Jewish disciples. All of their lives, since they were born, they would have been told that what they eat matters to God. That what they eat either makes them acceptable to God or unacceptable before God. What they eat either defiles them or makes them acceptable before the Lord. And so standing on hundreds and hundreds of years of Jewish tradition and culture and law that their parents would have thought and their grandparents and the great-grandparents, they stand there in a context with their mouths open because they just can't get what you're saying. You're saying that we can eat anything? Yeah. You know, you know as the story continues that this is one for the Jews that they found desperately hard to get. Peter doesn't get this all the way till Acts chapter 10. You remember the story? Peter has a vision of a big blanket coming down from heaven and there's all these animals and reptiles and birds on the blanket and God says, hey, you're hungry. Go kill and eat. And Peter says, whoa, I can't eat some of those things. They're unclean animals. And God says to him, what God has declared clean, do not declare to be unclean. Well, where did God do that? Where did God declare them to be clean? Right here in Mark chapter 7. If Peter had only listened up in this moment, he would have known. But he didn't get it. He couldn't see it. And he couldn't see it because of his culture. He couldn't see it because of his traditions. He couldn't see it because of his laws, the old Testament laws, the ceremonial laws. For hundreds of years, this is what Jews had believed. That we have to eat a certain way with our hands cleaned in a certain way, and that's what will ensure that we not be defiled before the Lord. And yet in just a sentence, Jesus undoes the whole thing. He effectively says this, and your traditions and your cultures, they don't really matter in making you acceptable before the Lord. And those laws... Those cleanliness laws in your ceremonies that helped you understand that you needed to be separate from people and you needed to be clean before people, those laws pointed to me, how I was going to come and clean you from within, how I was going to cleanse you by my grace, how I was going to give my life for you so that you could be clean before the Father. So you go ahead and eat your pork sausages. doesn't matter because it isn't going to defile you. Because you're not defiled by what goes in. This would have no doubt took the Jews 
a significant amount of time to get their head around, as we see with Peter, not understanding it all the way till Acts chapter 10. And yet they would have no doubt been shocked by what doesn't defile them. But they would now be staggered by what does. Because one minute they are high-fiving each other that, hey, I love pork sausages, sweet, we can do it. And then Jesus says, but hang on. Let me explain to you what does defile you. And he ups the ante completely. Look at me at verse 20. And he said, but what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You know, they would have been astonished that we're not defiled then by what we eat. That would have been life-changing for them. But they would have been staggered as they heard then. But what does defile us? What does make us unclean is our hearts. It's who we are. Well, Lord, no washing of my hands is going to help that. No. No keeping away from certain foods is going to resolve that issue for me, right? No. You're not defiled by what goes in. You're defiled by your heart. You're defiled by who you are outside of grace. And what a sobering and detailed description of the depraved heart we have here in verses 21 and 22, don't we? Staggering. Thirteen things that help us to see our hearts. And they're not an all-inclusive list, i.e., well, if you haven't done those 13, sweet, you're in. They're just illustrative. If this is the type of thing that defiles you, envy and pride and foolishness and sexual immorality and evil thoughts and lying and coveting. Edmund Hybert in his commentary says, this list bears impressive witness to the unorganized diversity of sin. And it does, doesn't it? not one size fits all. It's many and varied. There are many different things that cut us off from God. Many different things that are reflective of things that go on in our heart. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. The crowds are all coming to Jesus wanting to heal their physical bodies, but no one thus far is thinking about their hearts. Because their understanding of their hearts is if I just clean my hands in the right way and eat the right food, then God will have me acceptable for sure. And yet in Jeremiah 17, 9, their own Jewish text, they read, for the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. They should have known. Your problem is not what you eat, it's your hearts. 
The thing that defiles you is not where you eat and the way you wash your hands. It is your heart. And so what is it that cuts us off from God? What is the matter of life and death and heaven and hell for this crowd in this moment? It's got nothing to do with food. It's got to do with their heart. The thing that defiles you. The things that cut you off from the Father. Namely, your heart. See, J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, Understanding this could not be more urgent or more important. Because it is only when you understand what truly defiles a person in the sight of God that you can understand your need for cleansing from God. Absolutely right. And so as Jesus preaches and teaches to the Pharisees and the scribes, they just don't get it. They hate it. What are you saying, Jesus? We don't want anything to do with this. In fact, we want you killed. As far as we're concerned, we wash our hands a certain way, we eat the right food, we do the right things, we wear the right clothes, we follow the right traditions at the right time of year, and God will accept us. We follow the law, we follow the Mishnah, we follow all the different things that we're meant to be doing. We know God will accept us. Jesus tells them and communicates to them over and over again, it's not about what you do, you will never be able to do enough. And yet they reject it all. And yet Jesus, full of compassion, full of patience and love for the crowd, he nonetheless turns his attention to them. Well, I want you to get it then. So disciples draw, draw near. And crowds draw near because they are telling you something that will misplace you. For heaven and hell and life and death are at stake. It has nothing to do with your washing of hands. It has nothing to do with what you eat, the way you eat it, or the time you eat it, or what indeed it is. For the thing that cuts you off from God is your heart. The thing that separates you from God as King of kings and Lord of lords is your heart. And the reason why Jesus is telling them over and over again is because he wants them to understand that I'm your healer. I'm your savior. See, Jesus understands that if you don't recognize your sickness, you will never look for a doctor. If as far as you're concerned, you wash your hands and you eat the right things and you'll be acceptable before God, you're living a lie, but you will never look for a doctor. So I need to help you see your sickness before the Lord, your defilement before the Lord, the reality of your situation before the Lord, your distance before Him that has been defiled because of your heart. A defilement that no ceremonial washing or no ceremonial food can rectify. And I need the crowd to see it so that they may run to me as their Savior. As the one who will cleanse you by grace alone. The one even now who is going and heading towards the cross to die in their place as their healer. As the one who through faith would wash them clean. As the only one alive who could reconcile them to Father, who they have been cut off from through their defilement. So what a lesson this is, don't you think? 
It's amazing. And we shouldn't brush over it lightly. This was huge for them. One commentator just talked about how this is one of the most life-changing verses in the whole of the Bible. And for the Jews, this was. This was groundbreaking. Whoa! So it's not about our ceremonial laws. No. They always point you to Jesus. The only way to be reconciled is Jesus. He's the one that will clean you. But number two, then, the lesson applied. This is not only a lesson of importance for them, it's a lesson of importance for us as well. And so what is it that Mark wants us to learn from this lesson? What is it that Mark wants us to see here? And what effect then, accordingly, does God, by his grace, as he breathes this lesson out through Mark, what is it that he wants us to see? What effect should it have on our lives and our souls? Well, if you're today and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the effect of this text on you, I believe, as God breathes it out, is that he wants you even now to repent of your sin and flee to him as the only one who can cleanse you, as the only one who can reconcile you to the God, the Father. See, my friends, this book, it's ultimately all one book. It's not just full of like, you know, little stories and laws and hey, that'll be sweet. We can teach the kids that. That's not what it's about. This is a book primarily of one story and it's a story of the greatest rescue mission ever told. It starts with God of how he made us and how he made us for himself to find our identity and our purpose and our joy in him. And he rested and saw that all he had created is good. But then mankind rebels against him. And ever since the first man rebelled against God, we've all, as men and women alike, been following suit. What have we been doing? Well, Jesus talks about it here. All these things from our hearts. Evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder. All these things that God instructs in his law that we mustn't do. We must seek first the Lord with our mind and our soul and our strength and love our neighbor like ourselves. We haven't done that. We've done our own thing. And because of that, we discover in Scripture, because of that, we are cut off from God. We have been defiled, unclean. And because he is clean and holy, he can't just spend time with us. Our defilement and our uncleanness must be punished because God the Father is a just God. And so we are in the natural in a mess. We are cut off from God in our sin. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that faces judgment. We're cut off from God in our sin, and we'll one day stand to give an account before Him, not with our friends at a party, but by ourselves before Him. And the Bible's clear where we are fine to have hearts that are defiled, we'll be punished and removed from him in the context of hell for all eternity. Not with a group of others, because friendship is a gift. So aloneness with our own thoughts for infinity. And yet God so loved the world, we discover in John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son 
so that anyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. God in his grace sends his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told, knowing that we're cut off from the Father, knowing that we're destined for hell in our lives. He sends his son into the adventure. His son who lives a perfect life, a clean life, and then dies the death that we should have died, but makes it clear that if we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, then our uncleanness goes on the cross with him, and his cleanness is apportioned to our lives. If that isn't scandalous grace, then nothing is. We're the guilty ones. We're the unclean ones. And yet at Calvary, he died as the unclean one. When in fact, he was the clean one. But he died as our substitute. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I urge you to do that today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, namely your King, and you believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, then you will be saved. When we take him to be the king of our lives and our savior, then salvation is ours. We're no longer cut off from God because we are forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God and know that heaven will be our home because upon putting our faith in Jesus Christ, our defilement goes on to him and his cleanness goes to wrap round us as a robe of righteousness for all eternity. Is that not incredible grace? That's what he does. So the effect of this text on your soul, if you don't know Jesus, is even now as you sit here, to run from your sin, ask God for forgiveness, and put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And according to this word, as you do that, you will be saved. If you're here today, though, and you are a believer, I believe this text should also affect us. It's not just written for those that don't know the Lord. It's written for his disciples as well. And there's two ways, I think, that it should affect us as Christians. The first is that I think this text should humble and amaze us. See, to understand and to be reminded and informed of who we are outside of his grace should be a humbling moment for us all. Because this is who we are. Chapter 7, verses 21 and 22 describe our hearts. They describe who we are outside of his grace. Defiled. Dirty unclean, cut off from God. J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says, There is a deep truth in the words of verses 21 and 22, which is frequently overlooked. For our original sinfulness and natural inclination to evil are seldom sufficiently considered. Oh, the wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, particular temptations or the snares of the devil. Yet it seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We didn't need bad company to teach us. 
nor the devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. The seeds of all the evils here mentioned lie hid within us all. Oh, they may lie dormant all our lives. They may be kept down by fear of consequences, the restraint of public opinion, the dread of discovery, and the desire to be thought of as respectable. Listen. Every man has within him the root of every sin. This is who we are, outside of grace. And sometimes I think we live as Christians still as if we're living in a Facebook world. How do you need to grow? Oh, I don't know, really. No, nothing, really. I, I don't know, probably could read my Bible more. Really? Is that it? I mean, who amongst us, if we videoed your life this week, what you do in secret, your thoughts, what you think, the way you behave, who amongst us would say, hey, we're just going to play that for a few hours, the highlights, and before we join worship? I think people would be like, whoa, I don't know, that's going to be awkward. Okay, well, let's share that then. That's the reality of who we are. That's who we are. Outside of grace, outside of grace, we're quite a pathetic people, are we not? We don't earn his salvation by ourselves. We can't. Outside of his grace, we are defiled. And we can't just wash our hands or eat certain things and hope that that's going to try and make our way back. It's not going to be enough. It will never be enough. Outside of saving grace, we are totally cut off from God. And yet God in his grace has paid for our sin in full so that we can be fully reconciled to him. That's why Christians should be the most humble people alive. Because we're not Pharisees. We're not called to be floating around on, on air in white gowns as people who look out and go, oh, if only I could be as amazing as you. No, Christians should be these people that walk into church and go, I cannot believe I'm here. Given who I am, given the reality of my soul, Given the reality, even now, that I do the things like Paul talks about in Romans 7, I do the things that I know I shouldn't, I don't do the things I know I should. Oh, wretched man that I am. Christians should be people that are walking into church on a Sunday, shaking their heads, amazed that they get to sit here at all. This should humble us as we become aware of who we really are outside of grace. And it should also, it should amaze us. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, to, th to bring nothing to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. For he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friends, consider your calling. Chapter 7 is you. Verses 21 and 22 is our hearts. 
And yet we sit here as people who have been forgiven and have been adopted, been justified and reconciled, knowing that heaven is our home. We should be humbled that that is our reality, but we should be amazed. This should stagger us every day of our lives. If it is true, then our lives have been (laughs) dramatically cleansed. So that the greatest problem in my life of being unclean has been rectified by the King of Kings in my place. That should amaze us. We should never have to start a meeting by trying to encourage people to sing. There should just be something in our minds that goes, Yes! Highlight of the week! This is amazing! Jesus died for me. I want to sing about it. Not because somebody's telling me I should, but because I'm just happy. I'm amazed. He died for me. And this is me. And yet you died for me. Humbled and amazed. That's not the only effect I think it should have on us. It should also, as Christians, it should also protect us. It doesn't take long to realize that the Pharisees and scribes are legalists. There's no points for seeing that. It comes with reading your Bible. It doesn't take long to realize that these guys really did think that through their behavior, they could make themselves acceptable before God. So we just eat the right things, we wash our hands at the right times, we wear the right things, we read the right things, we do the right things, then God will accept us for sure. That's legalism. Thinking that through our behavior, we can become acceptable before God. Thinking that through our works, God will accept us. It doesn't take long when you've been church for a while to start tutting at the Pharisees and the scribes. And so you read it and you go, oh, oh tut, tut, tut. Should have known better. Should have come to Sovereign Grace. They would have been really helped. You know, it doesn't take long before you start tutting at these guys in the Bible. And yet in all honesty, I submit to you, my friends, there is a Pharisee and a scribe within all our hearts as well. Sometimes more than we think. There is a tendency and a temptation in our hearts, in all our hearts, I think, towards legalism. Towards smuggling our works into a salvation that is all of grace. And yet we start to smuggle in our works, thinking it's all about what I do. Then we all do it. Different ways, different times in our lives. And so you become a Christian, and you are absolutely on fire for Jesus. I mean, you're the happiest person alive. No one's telling you to be happy. You just are. You want to tell everybody about Jesus? You're staggered that he died for you. You're on the front row. We don't even dance in this church, but you're dancing because you're just so excited about everything that's going on. No one's teaching you to do these things. You're just naturally excited about what God has done. And then we start to disciple you because, hey, you become a Christian. That's sweet. And we're called to disciple people. And so we explain to you, hey, you need to read your Bible. You should read your Bible. It's important. You know, blessed is the man. He spends time in this word, who meditates on it day and night. So we teach people to read their Bible and meditate on verses and understand different verses and study these things. And then you get taught to, hey, I need to reach out and tell people about Jesus. I need to be thinking about my school or my college or my workplace in terms of a a mission feel for me. And then you hear about singing, why we sing, how we should sing before the Lord. And we hear about giving and serving. 
about going to a life group and telling people about our lives and actually doing life together. There's over 50 one another's in Scripture. And so we start to see them in the Bible about, hey, I need to bear one another's burdens. I need to care for people. I need them to care for me. I need to encourage people. I need them to encourage me. And all these things are good things. All these things are in the Bible. All these things are things that are given to us by God to experience His grace. And yet within a year or so, that dude who was sitting on the front row, excited and dancing and singing before the Lord, is now sitting at the back. He's kind of in and out of it. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because in his heart, there's a Pharisee and a scribe. Because when he got saved, he's just amazed and he knows that Jesus paid it all. But as he's got taught about what it means to follow Jesus, all these things, he started to get confused. And instead of seeing them as ways of experiencing God's grace, of knowing his nearness, he started to think these are ways of earning God's grace. And I suck at them. I'm rubbish at reading my Bible. I'm rubbish at praying. My evangelism is poor. So, hey, God must be, well, I must be defiled before him. He must be disappointed with me. Because I suck as a Christian. You know, that just doesn't happen when we just become a Christian. I think we lean towards that all the days of our lives. Here's the good news from Mark chapter 7. The good news that it placards before our eyes is that what cleanses you is Jesus' finished work alone. Full stop. Done. What cleanses you before the Lord, what makes you acceptable before God is not your Bible reading and your praying and your evangelism. That's not it. Otherwise, the cross wasn't enough. What makes you acceptable before the Lord, what cleans you before the Lord is the reality that on the cross, Jesus has paid it all in full. So does that mean then that we shouldn't read our Bible and pray? No, we should do those things, but we must understand they're ways of experiencing God's grace, not ways of earning God's grace. We can never earn God's grace. The only person that earned God's grace is Jesus Christ in our place. We must understand that. And yet I think there is a tendency and a temptation in all our hearts towards smuggling in works. And they're sitting at the back, thinking, I'm just a rubbish Christian. You know, I've even had in my life as a pastor, people say to me, hey, we're thinking of finding another church because we just don't really feel we fit because we're just not good enough. Not good enough? If you're not good enough, then you should be joining the pastoral team because none of us are good enough. Outside of grace, we're defiled. Outside of grace, we stink. Outside of grace, we have got nothing. Outside of grace, there is not an individual in this room that has anything to boast in. We are all pathetic before the Lord outside of grace. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what makes us righteous before the Lord. And that's what gives us something to be humbled and amazed about. Mr. D. Dixon says it this way, He says, For I have taken all of my good deeds and all my bad, cast them in a heap before the Lord, and fled from them both. 
And I have instead betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him I have a sweet peace. My friends, we need to follow that example. We take all our good works and all our bad works, and when it comes to the issue of salvation, we throw them all in a heap before the Lord, and we run to him, knowing I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in that and that alone, we will find a sweet peace. So what a lesson. What a kind lesson. Kind of grateful that the disciples didn't get it. Because it meant that by God's grace, we now do. What a lesson. Would we be humbled by it? Would we be amazed by it? Would we be protected by it? And in him then, and we all find a sweet peace. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the way it does speak to us today. It does have arms. It pursues us. It does have feet. It runs after us. It does have a voice. It speaks to us. And Lord, would we now live in the good of it, with that sweet peace that Mr. Dixon talks about, would that be the reality in our lives? Lord, would there be no striving to make ourselves acceptable before you? Would there only be resting and knowing that we are acceptable before you because of Jesus? But you, Lord, have indeed paid it all. And so would we rest in you? Would we find the sweet peace of Mr. Dixon in you because you paid it all.